welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, and I'm in the remote recording studio today with Michelle Chihara, a longtime LARB editor who joins me today as our newly minted editor-in-chief. So congratulations and welcome, Michelle. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's very exciting to be here in this new role and to be here with you. On this week's show, Michelle and I speak with Anand Girdardas about his latest book, The Persuaders, at the front lines of the fight for hearts, minds, and democracy. The Persuaders, published this past October by Knopf, offers an inside account of how activists, politicians, educators, and other leaders on the left are working to manifest change in a deeply divided America. It's a fabulous study, chock full of interesting tidbits gleaned from hundreds of hours of interviews with folks like Black Lives Matter's Alicia Garza, Congressional Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Bernie Sanders campaign workers, and many, many more. It's also this month's selection for the LARB Book Club. The Book Club is a premium LARB membership program that gives you all the discounts and other benefits of our LARB supporter membership program with a bonus package of four books a year delivered directly to your door, as well as members-only conversations with LARB editors about some of the most cutting-edge and critically acclaimed writers of our time. Recent Book Club picks include Andre Kirchhoff's Grey Bees, Kaming Chang's Gods of Want, and Namwali Serpel's The Furrows. To sign up for the LARB Book Club membership, visit www.shop.lareviewofbooks.org backslash join. Again, that's www.shop.lareviewofbooks.org backslash join. So Michelle, what did you think about this interview? I know that both of us really enjoyed the book, and I just wanted to have you give our listeners a little preview of what they're going to hear. I did. I really enjoyed it. uh, And I found it actually quite moving. He is talking about the importance of centering the success of people who are very persuasive on the left. He is thinking about people who are calling in instead of calling out. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was it was really hopeful to read and to speak with him. He's incredibly knowledgeable about all this and had an amazing amount of access to all of the people in his book. Um, And we didn't even get a chance to get into some of the stories that are in the book that I really wanted to talk about. So hopefully we can do that in the members only discussion. There is a fascinating anecdote about Bernie Sanders refusing to take a jacket from a veteran who really wanted to give it to him. Oh yeah. Very poignant and nuanced and fascinating. And we didn't even get to talk about that in the interview. So, so much more to explore. Exactly. All right, well, let's get to that conversation. We have Anand Girdardas with us on the line today. Anand is an award-winning journalist whose work has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Atlantic, Time, and many others. He is also the author of several books, including the international bestseller Winners Take All, The True Americans, and India Calling. Anand joins us today from his home in Brooklyn to talk about his most recent book, The Persuaders, at the front lines of the fight for hearts, minds, and democracy. Culled from years of interviews with everyone from Alicia Garza to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, The Persuaders goes deep to get a handle on what helps change hearts and minds at a time when our fragile nation feels more divided than ever and common ground is eroding beneath our feet. Welcome to the show, Anand. So, Anand, I wanted to thank you for this book. I, I found it really profoundly moving, and especially in these times where it feels... I think so many people have the day-to-day experience of feeling like we are not finding common ground. It's getting harder, not easier. And so the book really feels like just a series of hopeful stories about people who are putting in the patience and really making themselves vulnerable in different ways to do that work of finding common ground. If there's anything that you'd kind of like to talk about, it would be interesting to hear if you're getting reactions to the book that have surprised you at all on the theme of common ground. If you could kind of tell us that first, then I have some specific issues I'd like to delve into. Thank you for having me. And I I would say The Persuaders as a book is an intervention. And so the most interesting reactions are from those with whom it's trying to intervene. My previous book, my third book was called Winners Take All, and it was a critique of the billionaire class. 
And that's a kind of very different thing where it's a work of criticism and it's a work of, in some ways, denunciation of a kind of remote group of people. This book, The Persuaders, is quite different in that it is a an intervention, but a loving intervention with a group of people who are my allies, which is, broadly speaking, the pro-democracy movement in this country. There is right now, it's not about left or right or Democrats and Republicans in America right now, there's a pro-democracy movement or an anti-democracy movement, effectively, a movement for the normalization of political violence and hatred and election denying and mass delusion versus a movement for kind of reality and popular sovereignty and liberty and justice for all. And my concern is that the pro-democracy movement has in some ways abandoned the core idea at the heart of democracy, which is persuasion, which is the idea of changing minds in order to change things. And I watched as in many ways, the most kind of dystopian forces on the political right, even as they turn their back on democracy, have never actually given up on persuasion. The right actually really believes in persuasion. What is Fox News, if not a giant persuasion machine. It's not a news channel, but it is a giant persuasion engine. And behind something like Fox News, there is a view of humanity that in some ways is fundamentally hopeful about the possibility of moving minds, right? Fox News exists to radicalize people about things they didn't know about yesterday, about issues they may not have thought that much about, to activate in them consciousness about the utter like ridiculousness of outrages that were not really present in their consciousness until they were radicalized about those things. It understands its purpose. And in many ways I was watching on the political left as a kind of anti-persuasive shrug started to spread a feeling that, ugh, people will never change. If they voted for this, they'll never vote for anything else. If they belong to this group or that group, they'll always be aligned with the interests of this group or that group. If they are against the vaccine, they'll always be against the vaccine. If they voted for Trump, they'll, you know, if they're homophobic, they'll always be homophobic. The problem with this kind of shrug, I, mean, I understand where it comes from because we live in an incredibly frustrating era. But the problem with this shrug is that it's categorically false from an empirical point of view. It's just false. It's just not true that people don't change their minds in our lifetimes. There has been remarkable change in people's minds on a whole bunch of issues that we live with the results of every day. And second, it's just an incredibly demoralizing and self-defeating way of looking at the world. And I wrote the book because I was very concerned that the most dystopian forces of our age had a more optimistic view of their ability to pull people into their ideas than the movements that I actually want to win. It's so interesting to hear you say that because that was one of my questions as I was reading through. I'm like, why choose, you know, why is there not a chapter that's actually exploring how the conservative right has done some of this so effectively? And you gave like a, a great response. I mean, it's horrifying what is happening. But then if you look at, for example, what happened recently in the House of Representatives, it's like, okay, well, they're people that are steadfast in getting their way and ended up getting a lot of consent. I mean, many concessions, we don't even know what they got. So I'm wondering as you're speaking, if there's something about, okay, so the right does this and you're right, they kind of market, to use that term, to people's emotions and their desires. And I think they give them a story that they want to be wrapped up in. And the left does that too, but you're right that it seems to have given away the ground of persuasion. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about maybe why you think that has happened and if there are some tactics that the right uses that might actually work on the left. I think at the simplest level, the left has an idealistic understanding of how political opinion formation works. And I think that it is not really empirically grounded. It is more kind of like a Plato, Aristotle, like college seminar picture of how opinion formation works, right? And given the publication, this is for like, I think we all share 
a kind of view of like a kind of reasoning society in which people are grappling with ideas and then, but let's come down from the clouds for a second. The way it works for most people, most of the time in a democracy is not in fact reading 8,000 word articles and then deciding how to vote on immigration. It is a much more, for most people, visceral, sometimes passive, sometimes emotional, sometimes in some ways precognitive process that lands people at the opinions they have, right? People's fear, what is just actually fear and a fear they may not even have processed in a particularly deep way, a fear they may not even be able to actually articulate to you what it's about. They may say it's about one thing and it's actually about something else, but just a fear. People know when they feel safe and they know when they don't. People know when they, you know, the kinds of social changes for the better and worse that just unsettle people, unsettle the people living through them sometimes. I remember being a foreign correspondent in India. Some of the people who were rising in India and were benefiting from social change were the most discombobulated by those social changes, right? These kinds of what we, with children we call big feelings are rife in any society. And we have been living in this society in an era of real and dramatic social, technological, every form of change in the last generation or two. And basically, to answer your question, what the right understands at a meta level is given a society awash in big feelings about all kinds of changes, good changes, bad changes, inevitable changes, self-inflicted changes, a smart political actor isn't just gonna stand at the end saying, please vote for this tax policy. Can I interest you in this healthcare idea? What do you think about doing this to Medicare, right? A smart political movement is gonna meet you at your big feelings, is gonna be there every time everyone has an emotion about everything and is gonna have a, imagine a kind of pipeline from like an emotion to policy pipeline so that when regular people of all backgrounds encounter the stimuli of various forms of change or various encounters with where the country's headed that are not yet fully political in their minds. They go to a training at work on race or on gender. They haven't yet processed it as part of some big national transformation. They just had to go to a training at work. Or your kid comes home and says, mommy is... America, a bad country, because I learned the founding fathers are bad people, right? That is not yet arrayed into some very big ideology. It's just a stimuli that you've gotten in your day because our kids are learning new things in school, thankfully, so on and so forth. The right kind of understands that people are receiving those stimuli all the time, making observations about their society, noticing things they hadn't noticed before. And I think it essentially has a giant conveyor belt from those big feelings, those stimuli, those observations, all the way through into its political program and ideology. That to me is the way to understand something like Fox News. Fox News is not trying to sell you policy ideas. It is trying to weaponize big feelings you are having because of things in your life. And it's trying to take you from those to fearing an alien invasion on the southern border or fearing that Kimberly Crenshaw is trying to impose some Marxist... Pr no one starts that way. Regular people do not start that way. They have to be radicalized into that. And so in some ways, the project of the book is to say, what does it look like to have a pro-democracy movement that is capable of coming down from the clouds a little bit and not just offering people policy, not talking about block grants and whatever, and actually walking with people through the process of trying to make sense of the era and doing that matching the right at that, but for good. One of the things that I was struck by in the book was the clarity of the critique of centrism. And I think that the right that you're describing here, the right that is so good at using the provocation of anger and fear together to radicalize their base. And then they have a kind of easier policy ask because they're trying to destroy the government. I mean, even the situation with McCarthy that Eric was referring to, they can claim just gridlock in government as victory because they can, and 
I've already heard Republican politicians on the on the air saying this. Oh, well, we created debate. We don't care if it's gridlocked. They're trying to tear it down. So as you say, they're an anti-democracy movement. It doesn't matter what policy points they have. But there's something in the book about, I think it's a not Shankar Osorio, who's where you're talking about the centrists think that if one group wants pizza and the other wants burgers, that you can get them by having a pizza burger. <laughs> I thought that was really funny. And I think that's a really apt critique of what happens in the kind of centrists. Well, we're just going to have more reasoning behind our policy maneuver and we'll find a policy that's just right, like the porridge, right? And it, it comes out selling like they're selling porridge. It's not very exciting. But it also doesn't make people either feel like you understand their lives or feel like you can actually change anything. At the same time, in, in listening or in reading the stories of these different people who are working on the left, I was struck by how much time it takes to do the work that the left is trying to do now to build coalitions, to get people to recognize other people's pain in their own, to kind of build those bridges. It just, the kind of deep canvassing that you were talking about, it takes more time than a kind of brief provocation. And it takes more time to get people to believe that we might be able to reinvent the world, but that might actually be what we need to convince them to do. I agree with that. I think that's a good way to frame it because I think in some ways what the distinction I was setting up earlier between some of the labors of the right versus the left is a different timescale. So I think one of the problems that I observe on the pro-democracy side is an essentially transactional view of electioneering. I leave you alone most of the time. I come ask for your vote every two and four years. I feverishly ask you for money in the run-up to those elections, first five times a day and then 25 times a day towards the end. And then I'm kind of bounced from your life for a little while. Like maybe I pass things to make your life better. Maybe I don't. But it's essentially a transactional approach. Vote for me, give me $10, I'll do this video for you, whatever. And you're exactly right that in a way what I'm suggesting is a more kind of sustained presence in people's lives as a pro-democracy movement, which is something that has a history on the left. It's just not the present of the left. We don't really have an IRL political left right now. We have had it in different moments in time, right? I mean, Bhaskar Sankara started the magazine Jacobin and, you know, has written a lot about these issues. I mean, he says he would kind of made this critique of the lack of an IRL left right now. And his point was, if you look at the 20th century around the world, when center left or left parties won, it was because they were profoundly rooted in people's lives, not just abstractly appealing. And the kind of example he gave, which still kind of makes my head turn when I think about it, he was like, there have been moments in the United States and other countries where the kind of labor party or equivalent would have had a representative in every building in a city. Okay. So like you're in your tenement building in New York city and you get a confusing letter from the IRS or whatever. And there's no internet in those days. Maybe you're not rich enough to have an accountant. You're just like a regular person who gets a confusing letter from the IRS that's like, you know, scary, like a scary letter. You don't know what it means. And in those days, like you might go to Irene on the fourth floor of your building, the local Democratic Party lady, and Irene would explain it to you or would know a more senior Democratic Party person at the neighborhood level who could get you to the right person who could help you, right? That's a level of just like sheer physical presence that we kind of laugh at it because it's so far from what exists. There's no reason it should be. It's not hard to do. It's not hard to do at all. It's just a total failure to do it. Being asked for $10 does not actually build community, which is something that obviously the Democratic Party does not seem to understand. Everyone who receives those emails feels very frustrated by them and feels totally alienated by that kind of relationship. Every recipient I've ever talked to about it. But the people on the sending end of it, who also understand this critique, are just like, well, it just works. It's like very, you know, high margin, like very low effort. You can email 58 million people at the same time and, you know, some reliable chunk of them will respond 
to your increasingly desperate pleas. And I think in some ways, this kind of fundraising and also just online, you know, the ability to, you know, social media and put your own message out without even the media gatekeeping has come to substitute for any kind of IRL infrastructure. I mean, I often think about in the Trump era, I mean, I live in a, you know, very heavily democratic area, Brooklyn, New York. I'm on all these email lists, national ones, state ones, county ones, like all these, I didn't even sign up for some of them, but somehow you end up on them. I was trying to think like on any of those lists, I was asked for money so many times, like I've never given it, but I was asked for it so many times. And was I ever invited anywhere instead of being asked for right. money? Like, was there ever like Donald Trump called immigrants animals today? Let's meet at Fort Greene Park at 4 p.m. and like, sing songs of representing our heritage and like have some fun. I just actually heard Steve Bannon quoted in a, a different podcast where one of the things he said about the Trump campaign was our secret weapon was the live rallies. And the Democrats really dismissed that and thought they could outsmart with micro-targeted data. And especially with the kind of information infrastructure that we have now, those in real life rallies became a whole culture around Trump. That's so true. And also like, if you have ever just like spent time among regular people rather than spreadsheets, like what you just said is also just a totally self-evident point. Like people right. like hanging out with other people. The only people who don't know this are like super brainiac geniuses, you know, <laughs> at a handful of political party organizations that maybe in their own personal lives, like transcendent concert experiences are not important to them because they're like with their calculators and spreadsheets. Like, I don't know who these people are who are setting a direction for these political movements where the way most people actually are, which is like emotional, interested in connection with other people, up for a transcendent experience every now and then, like with some desire to have like exuberance in their lives and not just like facts and figures. I just feel at some level, the pro-democracy movement cannot, it cannot have its agenda set by kind of like a nerdy overclass that does not understand how actual people feel part of anything. Just to push back for the nerds for one second, I would say that the, the centrist Democrat and the neoliberal Clinton party to kind of name that as a structure. That's the structure that really gave up on people, everyday people, I think. And so I think that we're reaping the whirlwind to some degree because the everyday people finally had been betrayed one time too many. And then during the pandemic, we had so many, in the book, the, the way that you describe the way people are, especially the deep canvassing conversations, which are so moving, right? That's part of what I found so moving in the book. It's that slow work that organizers, you know, union organizers and people on the left, part of the left have known forever that you gotta keep doing it. And they never stopped doing that. But they got defunded and, and kneecapped in other I, ways. I think, I think you're right, but I will say, that I think in sadly, this kind of aversion to or lack of talent at some of the more emotional and narrative and let's just say like lower than cognitive, like lower than like super smart appeals. I actually think it's a point of commonality across various sections of the left. And I'll tell you what I mean. You're absolutely right that the Clinton people, that's one story. But like I have a chapter on Bernie Sanders in the book, right? And like one of the mm -hmm. real debriefs I spent time with a lot of people who worked for him before and during the campaign and after. Debrief so a lot of people that I, in his world, including his Faz Shakir, his former campaign manager who ran the 2020 campaign and others was Bernie's total unwillingness to play in the kind of realms of like narrative and story. And some of that was actually like, as David Sirota explained to me, like his aversion to Bill Clinton style politics where you don't help people on substance, but you do narrative and story, fine. And then... Bernie is like offering people policy in this way. And then like Bernie did have a very powerful mass movement through his critique, but you know, he was stuck at a 20, 25% kind of level. And he, everyone knew he needed to be at 30, 35, 40. It was just a different, there were levels for him above where he was if he wanted to get where he was going. And I think a lot of the smart people working for him recognized that those next levels were not going to come through repetition, right? There was something that was not working for and I knew a lot of those people who kind of liked the politics, but he just, there was something about his affect, about his way of moving through the world 
that if you were not 100% sold on the policy, you needed other things, other engines firing. And he basically like refused to play on those. He just like a deep constitutional aversion, a critique, a personal inability on some of those things. And like, I get it, but Bernie's personal story is actually quite powerful and not telling anybody it was not a very smart decision, right? This is a guy whose signature domestic issue was healthcare and whose mother died when he was 18 or 19, partly in the grips of a bad healthcare system. Never tells anybody that story. This is a guy whose father's family was murdered in the Holocaust and he's running against a neo-Nazi, potential neo-Nazi president in Donald Trump and almost never brought that up. There's a way to be authentically Bernie, to be a policy guy, fine and good, but to also recognize like people are simple creatures and the next round of people that you need for your campaign may not know what Medicare for all is, no matter how many times you have said it out loud, but they may understand a guy who wants to avenge his dead relatives from the Holocaust and who wants to make sure that his mother, that no one ever suffers what his mother had to suffer. People get that stuff, right? And I think we can't afford movements in this kind of age, given the stakes, movements that are not firing on every single cylinder. Policy, narrative, emotional appeal, kind of IRL rally appeal, that kind of physical infrastructure of parties that I was talking about, and every other cylinder we can think of. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Anand Girdardas, author of The Persuaders, We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. We're joined by Sabrina Imler today. Their new book is called How Far the Light Reaches, A Life in Ten Sea Creatures, and Sabrina is joining us to give us a book recommendation. Sabrina, what book are you going to recommend? I wanted to recommend Patricia Wants to Cuddle by Samantha Allen, which is a very fun short book about reality TV dating shows, mythological you are speaking creatures, my language. <laughs> and sort of discoveries of queerness. It was a book that I had a blast reading. I read it like really just in one go on the couch. And I love a book that you can sort of sit down and just read and to completion. I had a really hard time reading other very serious works of nonfiction when I was writing my book. And so I think I found a lot of solace in like fun, pulpy, queer romances. And this one is like a fun, pulpy, queer romance that also adds Bigfoot as an element, (laughs) which was really fun to me. How did you come upon this book? Did you find it on your own? Did somebody recommend it to you? I went to Unnameable Books in Prospect Heights and I was just looking through their used section. And the cover is so striking. It's Bigfoot with painted pink nails holding what appears to be like an Instagram influencer. And I didn't even know it was queer, but the the writer, Samantha Allen, actually came out with a book called Real Queer America with my editor. So I knew about her work and I was like, oh, Samantha Allen, like a queer writer, a chronicler of nonfiction, like what? Yeah. And then it was fiction and I was really drawn in. That's a great recommendation. Sabrina, will you tell us the title again and the author? This book is called Patricia Wants to Cuddle and it's by Samantha Allen. Thank you, Sabrina. Thank you. We've been talking to Sabrina Imbler. Their new book is called How Far the Light Reaches. listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Now, back to our conversation with Anand Girdardas, author of The Persuaders, at the front lines of the fight for hearts, minds, and democracy. I really think that the chapter on Bernie Sanders and AOC is fantastic, and it is one of the most kind of just nuanced portraits of those two figures that I've read. It's really quite powerful. But isn't there something in there about, it seems to me that throughout the book, part of what you see is that it is a kind of addiction to outrage on both the left and the right that is creating so many of these problems. And what AOC seemed to be able to provide was not just authentic personal material, 
But that Bernie, it was almost like his whole career, his whole political career had been based on anger, on tapping into that anger, which, you know, in the labor movement, like you say, that's the first thing, you find that anger. And it was almost an old left strategy. And it just, anger has its limits, especially in the current technological societal reality. Anger has reached its limits. AOC was just better at tapping into a different set of feelings. I think that's right. And I think one way that I understand AOC is that she is multilingual in many senses of the word multilingual. She's multimodal and multilingual. I think multi is like a is a important way to understand what she's doing. And so if you say, if you think about Bernie's anger, I think she can match that anger. I think we can all think of speeches she's given. I don't think you'd say she's sanded the edges of her critique. No, no, and we still need anger. But then you say, can you also make people feel like Obama made people feel sometimes? And I think we would say she has had moments where she can do that also without any contradiction with the anger point in a way that maybe Bernie would would struggle to do or, or would feel would be kind of detracting from the anger. You know, I think she's someone who is comfortable in a profoundly modern way, the way Obama was a profoundly modern figure, then even just the notion of that kind of multimodal existence is a modern idea. Bernie comes out of a different tradition, a kind of old left labor tradition that, as you say, I mean, has its power and has achieved its victories. I think she is from a different generation that is intersectional, that she's able to make a class critique and then recognize the ways in which class reduction doesn't work on a whole bunch of levels. She's able to be angry and hopeful at the same time. I think she's able to provoke and command attention and make a gentle kind of pitch to people who may not share her moral intuitions, but might one day. I think in many ways, she's such an interesting figure because of her ability to straddle those different impulses. And I should say, and I tell the story in the book, one of the reasons she's a member of Congress is that there was a recruiting drive after the 2016 loss and all the kind of autopsying and self-reflection that happens after a loss like that. There was a project, many projects, to try to figure out, okay, how do we not let this happen again? How do we beat this kind of movement? And, you know, she was recruited and grew out of this effort called Brand New Congress. And in this slideshow, like before there was even an organization, while they were still just kind of riffing, riffing the kind of movement that she would end up becoming the leader of, they were kind of trying to imagine people like her into being as a force in Congress. In the early versions of that slideshow, they basically talked about what are the two most transformative movements within the Democratic Party in recent years? And and their answer was Barack's us and Bernie's them. And what they meant by that was Barack was able to, you know, yes, we can, we can do these things. We're the one we've been waiting for. It was hopeful. Barack's us was hopeful and uplifting and galvanizing. And it was positive about America. And it was future oriented, powerful. But also Bernie's them, which is to say those insurance company executives are the reason your child's coverage was denied. Those billionaires are the reason that you live in a society where X, Y, Z happens. Those people over there, also very powerful, right? Really educative, edifying movement that taught a lot of people, including AOC, to look at their lives in a new frame. The question that those progressive activists in that PowerPoint, which became an organization, which became a kind of recruiting force for AOC and others, the question they were raising is, can we combine these two things? Can we combine Barack's us and Bernie's them? And what is the profile of candidates who can speak in both of these languages at the exact same time or interchangeably? And one of the answers was AOC. But she's, to kind of loop back to something a little bit earlier, she seems like, and perhaps I'm giving her too much credit, like I think she's anomalous actually in that way. Like one of the insights that I think you draw it so powerfully is how this culture of critique, for example, kind of often forecloses a culture of collaboration or what, in the words of a number of your subjects, a culture of calling in, right? So it's calling out versus calling in. 
And a number of your subjects talked about how the left spends too much time talking about problems. And it's those kind of emails, that, the fund driving emails, like, you won't believe, Eric, what just happened. Like, do you have $10 for us? And I'll never hear anything more about that issue. And I'll certainly never see those $10 if I were to send them again. And so I'm wondering, do you think AOC is unique in being able to balance both calling something out, but then calling in people or giving people a sense of hope that they can join a movement or that it's possible to change? Or is there a rising, perhaps like Gen Z or millennial generation class of politicians who are more adept at balancing that kind of Obama and Bernie vibe? I think in some ways that, and this is something that you all clearly understand about the book, but not necessarily everybody does, which is that what I'm trying to define a persuader as is someone who does both of these things at the same time. Like, right? In a way, I'm trying to redefine persuasion away from contorting yourself and compromising and diluting as a way to reach people. I'm trying to reframe this new generation of persuaders that the best thinking about how you do it now as being a combination of standing your ground and reaching out and being able to balance anger and outreach, being able to balance the kind of us and the them. And so while I think AOC is rare in politics, I think that kind of dual orientation and skill she shows is something you see a lot in the organizing worlds that I write about in the book, right? In some ways, she is taking that from the world of organizing, which she comes out of herself, and bringing it into politics. And it's a dramatic insertion into that world. That's an interesting point, because I'm also wondering if because you're right, actually, and the, there's a long and beautiful section about Alicia Garza from Black Lives Matter that I think does touch on exactly this kind of balancing act. But I'm wondering if like, perhaps this culture of critique comes from too much, I don't want to say an infection of, but the way that the academic left moves into or directs certain kind of political messaging or influences it at those kind of top levels because that is definitely, academia is very much a culture of only critique. It's the only way that you get tenure. It's always calling out the problems and rarely, if ever, kind of offering any solutions. So I wonder if that's part of what is creating this world in which the grassroots actually is producing the kind of persuaders you're advocating for. Yeah, I think there's a, I think you're hitting at something very important, which I, I think there's a high-mindedness problem here. Is high-mindedness there a synonym for elitism? It is a kind of intellectual elitism. It's not a not a financial yeah. elitism. It's a, I'll tell you the way it shows up and the way I experience it. And I've had these conversations with members of Congress, people who do messaging. There's essentially a view in the highest levels of, I think, Democratic Party politics broadly, and this includes progressives and centrists and others, that if you present people policy ideas, if you offer people, tell people what you want to do, people will do their research and rise to the occasion and in the way of like Plato and Aristotle, like, you know, sit around the table and like talk about ideas and then, you know, read publications and watch YouTube videos and educate themselves and then like come around to your view. And it's quite self-evident that this is the view of voters that a lot of people on the left have. If you just listen to people on the left talk, there's a real, I say this with some amount of admiration, like there's a faith in voters, like there's a faith in active citizenship, right? Otherwise, if there wasn't, no Democratic Party politician would ever say the word block grant in a nationally televised mm. debate again, right? <laughs> the, fact that, the fact that that is like said all the time just really suggests a totally idealistic view of like what's going on here. Now, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but it's a huge fucking mistake to actually talk about block grants in nationally televised debate and all kinds of wonky things that are just not how people process the world. And I think when I talk about the high-mindedness, it is a bit of a sometimes implicit, occasionally verbalized disdain for things like appeal to emotion, appeal to sentiments, appeal to that kind of reptile brain, appeal to fear, appeal to just like the kind of lower parts of a human being below like high intensity cognitive reasoning based on like debate and big ideas. And in some ways, maybe I'm just superficial, but I I actually think there's nothing wrong with those lower parts of human opinion formation. 
I think you can use those lower parts of human opinion formation for good or for bad. I don't think that appealing to emotion is in itself wrong. I think appealing to it to do bad things is wrong. And it sort of leaves me feeling that in some ways the political left in the grips of this kind of high-mindedness is sort of like observing, is like sitting there like watching someone there's like a house to be built and it's kind of watching someone like take a hammer and then just go beat someone with a hammer and saying like, ah, we should not use hammers. <laughs> well, I don't think yeah. that's the takeaway. We in fact do need to build a house and we will absolutely need hammers to build it. I think the takeaway is we should not beat people with hammers or anything else. The problem here is the beating. It's not the hammer. Similarly, I don't think appealing to fear is actually a good or bad thing. I think you could absolutely build compelling coalitions around fear of medical bills in this country. That is something you should be afraid of. It's fucking scary. And you should be afraid of the medical bills that you have no idea when they're gonna come, how much they're gonna be for, or what you possibly did to have on land in your lap. That's absolutely a fear that I would like to be even more widespread than it is because it's a valid evidence-based fear and it's a generative fear that might build and grow support for the kinds of healthcare policies that could make that fear go away. Is playing to fear inevitably negative? I don't think so. I, I think the abortion rights movement has very successfully and generatively played to fear in the wake of the Dobbs decision because it's actually scary that a bunch of self-appointed womb experts think that they know what to do with women's bodies. and. There's a real appeal to that fear, but done with brilliance and strategy and for good. So part of what I am trying to push back against is a tendency to think people are wonkier than they are and to look down on other ways of appealing to people. And, and all of the persuaders I write about in this book are in their own way, making this case in their own work, talking about ways of building that bigger we and drawing people into coalition that are not just cerebral, but that as Alicia Garza says, quoting Maya Angelou, more interested in a movement that is focused on how it makes people feel than just what it says and what it thinks. I come from the academy. I've been a, an academic for about a decade now, and I'm very familiar with the rage that Marxists using Marxism to gatekeep an elite hierarchy can provoke in people. <laughs> um, there's no hypocrisy like gatekeeping an academic hierarchy in the name of radical equality. <laughs> um, I think some of the wonkiness that you're describing, I think some of it is not necessarily academic or because of any connection to academia, but kind of in bad faith. And some of the centrism that I think you describe as well is... I don't know that it's really people who thought that voters were, I mean, maybe in some cases it was, but in others, I think it's just people who have found a safe way to present their position while they take money from donors who are behind them. So I would say that some of the best academic work that I know that has contributed to the left is academic work that does think about what is it that we are trying to build towards somebody like Ruth Moore Gilson, right? And who is explicit about how she works with and does research in the communities that she's concerned about. That's not about the vocabulary that you use in the messaging. That's about the, the vocabulary you use in your classrooms, which I think is pretty different. But I, I really, I kind of want to come back to the question of fear it really felt to me, especially in the AOC Bernie chapter, that part of what we were talking about here was building trust. If you are in a landscape where fear is already in the mix and that in a way it's not just outrage that Bernie couldn't move away from outrage, but he couldn't, what was the Anat Shankar Azorio phrase, paint the more beautiful tomorrow. And that part of what is so hard about what you're describing and what these kind of amazing folks in the book are able to do is to time the moment where, okay, now's when we can recognize your fear and, and hear that. And then now's the moment where we pivot to 
to a different way of imagining ourselves in this together. I don't know if it's that AOC seems so unusual as that it seems to me that while the book is very hopeful, it also did strike me that it's just, it's, it's a real art. <laughs> and it's, it's hard to always have that art at your fingertips of knowing when to use which strategy and how to reach people. Yeah, it is. And, you know, it's an art that we don't need everybody to be doing all the time, but we need a lot more of us to have it at our disposal, whether we are members of Congress or just like people in families. I mean, I think we just come out of the holidays. I mean, I, everyone I know is dealing with this in the small scale of their own family or neighborhood circles. And I, th I think the the thing that I am very mindful of is the question of why we are even in the kind of convulsive moment we're in that requires people to step up with this art. And I think a lot of times on the left, we like fail to tell the story of the incredible amount of progress that has been made that has delivered us in a moment of backlash convulsion. It's really important not to center the backlash as the protagonist of the story, which I think we mistakenly do in trying to resist it and build up the amount of threat that it represents, which it does. But if you kind of start the story with, there's this dangerous fascist movement taking over America, I think you've kind of put a reactionary movement in a position of protagonist that it does not deserve. It is not a protagonistic movement. It is a classic reactionary movement. So reaction to what? Reaction to progress. Reaction to progress that is real and has been won, that is that scares the living daylights out of people who don't want to live in a world of equality, who don't want to live in a multiracial democracy, who don't want to live in a world in which women are full people, who don't want to live in a world in which white people have to you know, share the world with other people. And the way I prefer to tell the story is to say that group of people we are seeing right now lead this kind of sad backlash dangerous but sad backlash is a faction it's not most americans it's a minority faction of this country very animated minority faction and if you squint you know them you know that faction from when in the 19th century we had a choice about abolishing slavery or not and that minority faction didn't want to abolish slavery and you know that faction different names, different times, it's like a flowing river, but the river is the same. You know that faction from the end of the 19th century when the Industrial Revolution was creating new problems of dislocation of workers and inequality yawning wider. And we had the first you know, major labor reforms to try to protect workers from that new world. That minority faction was against helping workers. We know that when women's suffrage was up for debate, that minority faction who on the question of do we, again, extend the blessings of liberty and justice to more people or not, they oppose women's suffrage. When the New Deal was up for debate, do we, again, do we bring workers into a more protected work environment? And by the way, then a generation later and beyond bring workers of different backgrounds and colors into that compact. The minority faction opposed that. When racial integration in the 50s was a big national choice, the minority faction opposed that. When 1965, immigration, did we open it up to non-white countries? They oppose that. When gay rights has been up for debate in recent years, the minority faction oppose that. So when you frame the story that way, I almost feel bad for this group of people because they've actually lost every single battle in the long run on the question of extending the blessings of liberty and justice to more people or taking it away from people. And they have had long backlashes and short backlashes. And that to me what is what feels at stake now. Is this gonna be one of those really long backlashes, which we have had, or is this gonna be a blip or somewhere in between? That's what feels possible to alter, to affect. But I think it's worth telling the story that way, is to say progressive forces in American life have a great record have been consistently in a long, it doesn't feel like this one round to the next round of an election cycle. But if you step back, should women vote or not vote? Should black people be free or not be free? These kinds of big questions of 
who's this country for? The trajectory is remarkable. And the minority faction is really sad. It's a sad movement that keeps finding new and innovative ways to lose. And it's gonna lose this round of the question of whether we can be a multiracial democracy. It's a question of when it's gonna lose it and how it's gonna lose it and whether we can get our shit together to defeat it properly and not have it have a 30 year backlash where everything is terrible until they finally lose this round again. And I, I tell the story that way because I think we have to buck up and get out of our despair and stop telling the story that this is some huge, powerful, incredible movement of the future that we're up against. This is a sad sack movement of nostalgia and resentment and regret. It's a bunch of people who think that shooting beer bottles in their backyard is patriotism and who would rather break the country than share it. And they're gonna lose the way they've lost every single time. The generous tendency in American life has won again and again and again, and it will win again if we can get our act together. I love that that's a, a great way to think of The Persuaders as a book that is centering the story of the ways that we win and that we have won in the past and and hopefully we'll in the we know we'll win in the long haul again but may the persuaders be part of a short backlash. We've been speaking with Anand Girdardas, author most recently of The Persuaders, at the front lines of the fight for hearts, minds, and democracy. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd really love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Jiha Lee. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vladen. Thank you.